and join us in Hosea chapter 4. And as you're making your way there to Hosea chapter 4, I hope to give you a little bit of background for the time that we've been spending that will wrap up this next week in this book of Hosea. So this is one of the 12 what are called minor prophets in the Old Testament. A relatively obscure book, so much so that I, most people, as we've kind of shared in the last several weeks, this isn't something we're relatively familiar with. This isn't a book we've read a lot or, or could quote even for that matter. Um, but this is kind of an obscure place to be in the Bible. But I, I hope that you don't simply open up the Bible here and just kind of get another wrinkle in your own brain with a little bit more information about the Bible or from the Bible that you didn't have previous to this. But I hope that as we even go to the most obscure places of the Scripture, you come to find the characteristics of a faithful and loving God jumping off the pages, just like you would anywhere else. So much so that I hope you've seen over the last couple of weeks, we've seen some themes here that emerge that without these kinds of things, we, we might not understand what's going on in Hosea, much less for the rest of the Bible. So it begins by saying that God is speaking. So we, I know this is hard to believe, and you're allowed to bring as much doubt and skepticism to the table as you'd like. But God speaks, that God reveals himself. Is God like a human with a white beard in the sky and has a mouth who speaks like us? Absolutely not. But there's a sense in which the best way that we can describe the thing that God does to reveal himself and not be mysterious to us is that he reveals his character to us. From the very beginning, we believe that even creation began as God spoke and that all that exists was an overflow of God's perfection and creativity such that everything we see has the fingerprints of a loving and creative God. So much so that it's not just there for us to tolerate and survive with, but it's actually good. And the things that exist in the world are awesome. They're amazing, and they point to an awesome God. Things like apples that aren't just tolerable, but delicious, right? And other things that I enjoy that you may not, and I don't want to disgust you, but they're awesome things that we can eat. They sizzle in a pan with eggs for breakfast, right? You get what I'm saying? They're beautiful things. They're amazing things. And we see this beautiful handiwork of God such that we don't just tolerate existence, but like they're things that... And they're enjoyable, and they're there for God's glory and our joy, and He gives them to us freely. That's how He reveals Himself to us. But secondly, the way that we see God revealing Himself is He reveals Himself through people. Most fully and completely, we believe through Jesus Christ, so that we would never ever wonder if God is here and real and with us. God came to be with us in Jesus Christ. And if we ever wonder what God is like, we look at Jesus And if we ever wonder what God would say, we look at what Jesus has said. And if we ever wonder what God might be like if He were here, we look at the life and work of Jesus. God is not up there playing hide-and-seek from His people, but instead He is with us, among us, and He is for us, not against us. And we see this through the people that He sends our way. In your life, in mine, were these people, the prophet Hosea in his life, but then fully and most completely in Jesus Christ. And the thing that God says to us, we, we begin to believe and open our, open our minds to the possibility that God has something to say to us that's for our good. That is evidence of an agreement that we will call in the Bible a covenant. An agreement between God and His people. And that's a miraculous and crazy thing to believe because we typically only enter into agreements with people that are kind of on our same plane. And whenever we enter into an agreement with somebody who is greatly and and magnificently above us, that kind of a contract has consequences. And most of the risk, most of the cost is paid by the person on the lower end of that contract. If you don't believe me, enter into an agreement with a bank. Right, and the person who has to pay, fill out the most uh, most of the paperwork, and the person who has the most to lose is the person who is taking out the loan, not the person who's lending it, right? And the person who is greatly powerful over you has, has really very little invested. And at any given point in that investment, something goes bad, they can recoup and they can take whatever you leveraged, your collateral, and run away with it. And so for us to consider that there is a God who is powerful and mighty and creating all of the things in the universe... And then to consider that that infinitely greater and infinitely more powerful God enters into an agreement that costs Him with us is miraculous. And we see that played out over the life and message of Hosea. The last three chapters in Hosea, we've seen that Hosea represents for his people God and his investment into his people. 
by commanding Hosea to go and to marry a woman that would never be faithful to him. And to demonstrate his love for his people, he commands Hosea to take for himself a wife that would never be faithful back. And even though she runs and and eventually, because of her own decisions, loses power over herself, becomes an object of someone else, a, a property of someone else, to demonstrate God's love for his people, Hosea, instead of moving on and starting over with another wife, he goes and he purchases that adulterous prostitute of a wife for himself. So that you and I would never wonder what God is like and if He is loving and caring. Hosea demonstrates for His people a message of redemption. A message of purchase. So we pick up in chapter 4. And from chapter 4 all the way to the end of the chapter, or the end of the book, all the way to 14, things get much messier. Things get much different. And the message that Hosea has demonstrated to his people begins to be explained and fleshed out over the course of the next 10 chapters. It's a long walk that might be miserable, and I'm inviting you at least for a little bit to take that miserable long walk with me. Because I think as as we kind of guide one another through it, you'll find that it might be worth it. And you might come to the realization that God is a little bit different than you once thought, and to open your imagination to the possibility that God might be good and for you, might be breathtaking and astounding. And the message of Hosea demonstrated in his faithfulness to an unfaithful wife is expounded upon. And so over the next 10 chapters, which we'll run through over the next two weeks, more thematically rather than piece by piece, we want to do so for a reason. At this particular point, form and structure can be helpful. And up to this point in this book, there's been little epithets of of explanation about who Hosea is, what he demonstrates for God, who Hosea's wife is, and what she demonstrates about God's people. So much so, and they get confusing, uh, as you saw probably last week, um, I don't know if you caught this, Hosea purchases his wife, Gomer, for a homer. Did you catch that? So I already get the names of the people who live in my house mixed up. And so when you go and throw things like that at me, it gets even worse. So Hosea, the prophet, purchases his wife, Gomer, with a unit of measure that we don't use anymore called a homer. So if I get those mixed up and say the wrong words, man, just forgive me, you know what I'm talking about. And if you have to just repeat that over and over and over again, Hosea purchases his wife Gomer with a homer, then you'll be in the right spot. If, if, if I disorient you, then please forgive me. Because for the rest of the book, there is very little structure. There's very little organizing technique. Instead, the teaching and the message of the prophet Hosea for the course of his life seems to be just compiled and thrown together for the next 10 chapters. There's not much of an introduction. There's, there's moments of judgment, moments of, moments of condemnation and, and rebuke, and then there's moments of redemption and mercy, and there's really no structure or rhyme or reason to it, and it's just thrown together. I kind of love this. Um, this looks more like life for me. Moments of structure in life come much more rarely for me. I don't know about for you. And I try as hard as I can to implement structure, but there's kind of a message here that's scatterbrained, and maybe it will resonate with some of you For the rest of you, it might frustrate completely. So here we go. Let's read two chapters, chapter 4 and chapter 5 of Hosea, as we unpack the message of Hosea for his people. Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel. For the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love or no knowledge and no knowledge of God in the land. Instead, there is swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing of adultery. They break all bounds, and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Therefore, the land mourns, and all who dwell in it languish. And also the beasts of the field, and the birds of the air, and even the fish of the sea are taken away. Yet let no one contend, and let none accuse For with you is my contention, O priest. You shall stumble by day. The prophet also shall stumble with you by night. And I will destroy your mother. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge because you have rejected knowledge. I reject you from being a priest to me. And since you have forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children." The more they increase, the more they send against me. And I will change their glory into shame. 
They feed on the sin of my people. They're greedy for their iniquity. And it shall be like people, like priests. I will punish them for their ways and repay them for their deeds. For they shall eat but not be satisfied. They shall play the whore but not multiply because they have forsaken the Lord to cherish whoredom, wine, and new wine, which take away their understanding. My people inquire of a piece of wood and their walking staff gives them oracles. For a spirit of whoredom has led them astray. And they have left their God to play the whore. They sacrifice on the tops of the mountains and burn offerings on the hills under oak, poplar, and terebinth because their shade is good. Therefore, your daughters play the whores and your brides commit adultery. I will not punish your daughters when they play the whore nor your brides when they commit adultery for the men themselves go aside with prostitutes and sacrifice with cult prostitutes and a people without understanding shall come to ruin. Though you play the whore, O Israel, let not Judah become guilty. Enter not into Gilgal, nor go up to Beth Aven, and swear not as the Lord lives. Like a stubborn heifer, Israel is stubborn. Can the Lord now feed them like a lamb in a broad pasture? Ephraim is joined to idols. Leave him alone. When their drink is gone, they give themselves to whoring. Their rulers dearly love shame. A wind has wrapped them in its wings and they shall be ashamed because of their sacrifices. Hear this, O priests. Pay attention, O house of Israel. Give ear, O house of the king. For the judgment is for you. For you have been a snare at Mizpah and nets spread upon Tabor. And the revolters have gone deep into slaughter, but I will discipline all of them. I know Ephraim, and Israel is not hidden from me. For now, O Ephraim, you played the whore. Israel is defiled. Their deeds do not permit them to return to their God. For the spirit of whoredom is within them, and they know not the Lord. The pride of Israel testifies to his face. Israel and Ephraim shall stumble in his guilt. Judah also shall stumble with them. With their flocks and herds, they shall go to seek the Lord, but they will not find Him. He is withdrawn from them. They have dealt faithlessly with the Lord, for they have borne alien children. Now the new moon shall devour them with their fields. So blow the horn in Gibeah, the trumpet in Ramah. Sound the alarm in beth Aven. We follow you, O Benjamin. Ephraim shall become a desolation in the day of punishment. Among the tribes of Israel, I make known what is sure. The princes of Judah have become like those who move the landmark. Upon them I will pour out my wrath like water. Ephraim is oppressed, crushed in judgment because he is determined to go after filth. But I am like a moth to Ephraim. I am like a dry rot in the house of Judah. When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his wound, Then Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to the great king. But he is not able to cure you or heal your wound. For I will be like a lion to Ephraim and like a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear and go away. I will carry off and no one shall rescue. I will return again to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face. And in their distress, earnestly, Seek me. I hate to be such a downer. I have the tendency, like Jimmy Fallon, to want to say to you, everything is awesome, which kind of means nothing is awesome. But it's kind of my tendency, if I have the opportunity, that I would like to make light of lots of heavy and serious situations. I tend to, if you hang around me long enough, to kind of deflect serious situations with humor. And I tend to, instead of kind of letting an uncomfortable and heavy moment take place, kind of deflect with my own sarcasm. I don't know if you have that tendency, but even as we look in this particular passage, we're looking at something that I hope you will admit with me is really tough to digest. To hear these words of God toward people about how terrible they are and to use borderline explicit language to illustrate how terrible they are isn't something that I take any joy in 
or have any pleasure in explaining. And I want to ask you if you'll be patient with me as we kind of take tiptoe steps through this text. I hope you'll find it's worth it. I think you might find something about God and true about God that might actually change your mind about the depth of darkness that we see here. And it's this, that God's faithfulness can be seen as He brings consequences for sin in order that His people might return to Him. There's an H added in there. God's faithfulness can be seen as He brings consequences for sin. Not ultimately for misery, but ultimately that His people might come back to Him. I think I can prove this to you. I think I can show you this even in this dark and miserable couple of chapters. And so the first way to do this, we've got to define some terms. I don't know if you caught that, but there are a lot of words in there to use that, that aren't you, wor- your words we use on a regular basis. And they're, they're explanations of characters that, I don't know about you, we don't typically talk about even when we do talk about characters of the Bible. We don't usually use these names. And so I want to at least kind of scroll through these really quickly and see if we can add to, to maybe your knowledge of what's going on here. Maybe see something good out of this whole mess. So, This story begins as God creates the world, and as we come to find out, God creates the world perfect, and the first thing that people do is they just mess it up. But instead of just destroying those people and moving on and starting something else, God gives those people mercy. And every single story of the Bible after the first is a story about how people have a tendency to kind of mess it up, and then how God, instead of destroying them and running away from them and abandoning them, gives them chance after chance. And even though they broke the first covenant, the first agreement with God, God continues to renew a covenant and give a new covenant every single opportunity He gets. And every time they fail, from the point where their failure and idolatry leads them into captivity in Egypt, as their sinfulness is increased when God sets them free in Exodus, instead of destroying them, what does He do? He creates a new covenant. And the agreement of the covenant, He gives them new, and He gives them the Ten Commandments. A picture of what it might look like to be in agreement with a holy and perfect God. And what do the people do? They immediately destroy it. And after this particular covenant is given to these people, there's a set of curses that play out. A set of punishments that God promises. That if if you don't do these things, then rest assured, these consequences will follow. And God in His mercy has created a world in which He has endowed you and me with enough power to heap enough consequences on our head to last a lifetime. Such that the evidence that we live in a fallen and broken world can be seen all around us. And these punishments that exist, exist because we bring them on ourselves. All the way back to our ancestors who brought the first curse upon us. And so the book of Hosea unpacks piece by piece a multitude of curses that were laid out through Exodus all the way through Deuteronomy. The first five books of the Bible as we see God giving this covenant and agreement with these people as they break them, He also gives them Especially in in Leviticus chapter 26, Deuteronomy chapter 28. If you're a note taker, run that down and you can see piece by piece all of these curses laid out for them. And you'll see throughout the book of Hosea the ways in which the attitudes and ambivalence and then behavior of these people heaps these curses on them. This is what's going on. And so this is like a lawsuit. It's like a lawsuit being given to these people who have broken and are in breach of contract with their God. And it just heaps on over and over and over. Did, you get kind of, did it get tiring as even as I was reading it? Like a litany, like, oh my goodness, when is this going to stop? When are the bad things going to stop being heaped upon this? This is, this is starting to hurt my ears. Well, then you get the picture of these people and the consequence they brought on themselves. And then the, the prophet Hosea brings basically a lawsuit and presents it to them. But you also see the language of marriage still there, didn't you? Did you catch that? There's also the language of Hosea speaking as if to his own children, but also speaking to their mother, who in real life has cheated on him. And so it's like, as we saw the last couple of weeks, it's like being in the middle of some couple having an argument in front of you. And it's awkward, isn't it? You ever been in that situation where like mom and dad are fighting and you're like just sitting there watching like an innocent bystander? It's, it's awkward. It's awful. And some of you have the scars to prove it. And this is what we are witnessing firsthand. Hosea sends a message from God to his people and says, look, if you keep doing this, this is what's going to happen. And the consequence for the decisions that you have made is this. 
And these are the things that will play out. And did you catch the theme that was dominant here? I'm uncomfortable even reading it. The language of prostitution over and over and over again. Now rest assured, this isn't language that's used throughout the Bible, but specifically for for this passage, it means a lot. Because when Hosea says to God's people that they have been like a prostitute, he is speaking words from a deep place, is he not? Having been commanded by God to, to enter into a crummy marriage with a person who is unfaithful, who constantly runs back to her ways of prostitution. When Hosea says this, it comes from a real place, does it not? He doesn't gloss over this. He doesn't find a nicer way to say this. And, and so when he says you have played the whore and this is what this looks like over and over and over again, he's speaking from a real place. But Then he uses terms that as this covenant was breached by God's people, the splintering of God's people began to ensue. So while these kingdoms of this kingdom of 12 tribes of God's chosen people was united under their favorite king, a man after God's own heart named David, as his sinfulness and idolatry began to play out in the lives of his sons, the splintering effect began to play out in all of the ancestors. So much so that the 12 tribes begun to split. And you have of those 12 tribes, Judah And then you have the other side, Israel. And amongst those sons of Israel, including Judah, including Israel, or the name of Jacob that he gets after God encounters him, that we'll see in a minute here that's called Beth-El, you also have a name, Ephraim. Did you catch that name coming over, over and over and over again? That's the name of one of the sons of Israel. And so this judgment is not just for Israel, and all of his people, but specifically for the descendants of Israel, Ephraim, and even Judah. And the ways in which they have chosen to sell themselves out to the most, to the highest bidder, just like a prostitute would, so also have they abandoned God, and now we see the consequences. These are charges that are levied against Israel for their sinfulness, for their idolatry, and even for their ignorance. And how God because he is good, allows punishment to overtake them. Now, I just want to stop there and hang on for just a minute because I know this is where this is really tough to swallow. This is tough to to consider and this is tough to, to think about. But as we've seen over the last couple of weeks, it is actually God's love that brings about his punishment. Now, very 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 briefly, I want to show you, like the last couple of weeks we've seen, I love some things, I love some people, I love my wife, I love my daughters. I love them, and I mean with like the fuzzy, touchy-feely kind of love, right? The awe, I mean like, you know, just adorable kind of love. That, that's that, that silly, childish puppy love. I have all of that kind of love. But if you were to harm one of those people that I love, if you were to harm my daughter, then that, that puppy love, that, that warm, fuzzy feeling goes away. Because if I really love them, then my anger and wrath as a response to them being harmed is actually evidence of my love. So be careful. One of the things we bring to the text here is we have these assumptions that our culture has given us that like, if God is mean and bad, we run from him, he can't be real. In fact, I would argue some of the, one of the, one of the, one of the, the, the greatest arguments that I hear from people against God or why they would or would not believe in God is how much they hate him, right? And this is a legitimate argument. How can there be a God? Have you looked at the world? You're telling me the world is good? Have you, have you seen the world? Have you seen some of the things that happen? A million and a half children this year will die of communicable diseases that you and I get vaccines for or even reject those vaccines. I have a problem living in the world where God is in charge, a place where even though God is in charge, awful things happen to innocent people. And I have a problem with that. I want, I want to bring that out to you and you're allowed to have that problem, but I want to show you that the way that the world is is a result of brokenness that we have brought to it. It's a result of brokenness that from Adam and Eve, we continue to heap on brokenness. And it's actually God's mercy to show anger and wrath. And as I said last week, if I yell at my daughter to not play in the street, I yell at her and she doesn't like it. But when I yell at her, it's not because I hate her. It's because I don't want her to be harmed in traffic. And so... 
even take this basic understanding of God that you and I, I think, have in our own understanding of love and anger that comes with love and begin to see how that might play out in an infinitely perfect God. So our first instinct here is to think, if God has punishment for these people, I don't like them, I don't want any part of that God. But recognize that is actually evidence of His love. In the same way, if I as a father let my children play in traffic and you wouldn't want any part of me as a father, so also would you not want a part of a God who isn't angry about that which is broken. And so His wrath and His punishment is actually evidence of His mercy. And I hope I can even show you that the wrath that he shows, the punishment that he gives to his people is not evidence of how awful he is, but it's evidence of how good he is. Look, if there is a God and he's not angry about Adolf Hitler and the Holocaust, then he's not good and you shouldn't worship him. Like if there's no punishment for that kind of evil, then don't listen to another word I say because this God is not good. In any given moment, he could punish someone, praise another, and we don't know. But because we know that God is good, we know that God is angry and wrathful over that which is evil. And the things that set up and over and against us to destroy us actually oppose God. So go to this list. Listen to this, this litany of things that these people have done. Verse 1, it says that the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. Picture again Hosea speaking to a wife. The controversy is with the unfaithful people. And the punishment is so that ultimately he can win them back. As we've seen, he purchased his own wife back. And he, and he summarizes, I think, here in the first verse, the ways in which all of this plays out for the rest of the book. Did you catch that? There is three things. There's no faithfulness in verse 1. There is no steadfast love or mercy, depending on your translation. And there's no knowledge of God. So let me unpack those things, and I think you'll see the ways in which they get repeated over the last two chapters, and they get repeated for the rest of the book. Because I think if you were to lump us into a group of people and summarize what followers of Jesus really are, it would probably be lumped into these three things, right? We, we believe that we, because of Jesus, have knowledge of God. We believe that because of Jesus, we have an encounter with truth and a sense of integrity and faithfulness. And we also, because of Jesus, believe that we know what mercy is. And for this group of people, God sends Hosea to tell them and say that those things, those key markers, are no longer visible. In fact, they're gone. They're completely absent. So look at the, let's just break down these words real quickly. The word faithfulness, these are words that are throughout the Bible and usually used to ascribe a characteristic or a trait toward God. So when we talk about God's faithfulness, this is the word that shows up. But when we talk about human faithfulness, obviously it's not under the same kind of rules of holiness and perfection that God has, and so it's a little bit different. And so when we talk about faithfulness for people, we talk more about integrity and truth, right? So faithfulness for us means sameness. It means uniformity across different circumstances. You know what this looks like. We use the word hypocrite, and we don't mean it in a good way. And when we say someone's a hypocrite, we're saying that they're one way here and another way somewhere else, correct? And that faithfulness can be evident, especially when it's gone, through what we would call hypocrisy. So this is a token. This is meant to point out in us something that might be inconsistent. And even though it might hurt to look at these things in our own lives, here's what I want to ask you. Are there places in your life where you are one way here and another way there? Are there scenarios in which you're this kind of person around these kind of people and you're that kind of person around those kinds of people? Do you talk in a certain way here, but talk in a different way here? If so, then you begin to feel the effects of this indictment, do you not? Because even as you, if, if you're honest with yourself about this, you'll realize, like, you can't even control it, can you? Like, I don't even know why I do it. Like, when these people come around, this is what I do. I don't even know why. I can't even stop. I cannot stop being this way around these people and stop being that way around those people. There's just something in us that does this. There's something in us that is naturally duplicitous. There is something in us that wants to look different for different people. And we so greatly want the approval of the people around us that we will act like this person here to gain their approval and act like that person there to gain theirs. And if you can begin to see that in your own life, then you can begin to see the indictment that God has for these people. I don't want to just throw this at you. This, this involves me. 
this is a big deal why I don't, I don't play golf very much anymore. Because I don't know, I don't know about you and the things that bring these things out on you, but the way I'm talking to you about Jesus and God's love for you is not the way that I talk on the golf course. Maybe it's just me. I mean, you can look at me judgingly if you want, but maybe that's, maybe that's okay for you. But sometimes I feel like, like Satan, while I'm asleep, moves the furniture around in my house, right? So that when I get up and I unsuspectingly and unwittingly am walking around without shoes, kick and stumble over things, and I say all sorts of things that I wouldn't say to you in this sermon. And you begin to see this is, this is our nature. This is our human nature to be this way over here and that way over there. This is especially true as we see for the rest of this chapter, the way that it plays out sinfully. Most of the worst decisions you've made in your life, I would probably argue you made when no one was there, no one was looking, and you didn't think you were going to get caught. And you would have acted completely different if there had been people there. While the cat is away, the mice will play. Like This is our nature that while there is supervision, while you have friends, way of people around you, you'll be this way. But most of the worst things that you and I have done, the most harmful decisions for others and for ourselves, usually happen when no one's looking. Because we think that this duplicitousness, this unfaithfulness, this consistency and integrity won't be caught. And if you begin to resonate with that, you begin to see the effects of that in your own life, then you might be able to begin to sympathize with the plight of these people who were hypocritical. They did one thing one place and something else completely different somewhere else. So not only faithfulness, but then it says mercy or steadfast love. This is an attribute, again, that's usually ascribed to God throughout the Old Testament, but it's also, in this case, ascribed to the people. They, they're missing faithfulness, so they're hypocritical. They, they are one way, one way, one, one, way, one place, and, and completely different in, in another circumstance. But also, are they unmerciful? So they don't pass on the way that God has treated them. And the way that God has treated them has been with patience and steadfast love. Again, from the very beginning, the Bible tells us the first thing that people do, and if you want to argue the truth of the Bible here, this is, this is the worst place to do it, but like the first tenet of faith that we have that the Bible tells us about people is how messed up they are, right? And this is the easiest one to prove in a court of law, is it not? How, how much we fail, how readily we, 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 we resort to things that harm others and harm us. And so this, this thing is something we know about one another. We were honest about it. But instead of being honest about it, and being grateful the mercy that God gives, these people did not pass on that mercy to others. So they had no faithfulness, but they also had no steadfast love or mercy. So they were deeply judgmental. They didn't offer the same mercy that God had given them. Now there's two different aspects of mercy that I want you to make sure you catch. The first one is judgment. But the second one is kindness. Now, kindness without judgment is not mercy. It's superfluous, and it's, it, it's the most superficial kind of affection. Let me see if I can illustrate this for you, right? It's not mercy unless there actually is something wrong. And for us to extend mercy, we have to be brave enough and courageous enough to say that something is wrong. Begin, you, you begin to feel how this puts us at odds with our own culture? Like We're in a culture right now where intolerance will not be tolerated. You know what I'm saying? And like to say that's wrong or this is right is, is to put yourself at odds with our culture. It's difficult. To say that there's something that's universally true all the time, man, I get it. it, it that's, that just rings untrue in the ears of our culture. That, that's just not the way we tend to work. We tend to believe kind of with a postmodern perspective that all ways and all paths lead to the same direction with an equal amount of joy and pleasure and everybody wins. This is, this is something that's, that's a part of our culture. And, and to go against that is, it, it, we'll, we'll, we'll put you at the bottom rungs of our own culture. But what I would argue, and what I think Hosea might be saying here, is that, is that to run along with that is actually to miss out on one of the best things that God gives us, namely His mercy. So you can't be forgiven unless you're actually at fault. Mercy is when there is an offense, when something is broken, and we see that something is broken, and we see that something is inconsistent. And yet, there is, instead of punishment... There is kindness. And so half of the ingredient here for mercy is to acknowledge that there's something broken. And you see, for the rest of this book, that's one of the indictments against them. Did you catch that? There's a whole bunch of things going wrong, and they're just acting like it's okay. 
They do all sorts of things, namely unfaithfulness, all sorts of sinful things that God points out to them. And in their stubbornness, we find out that they just acted like nothing was wrong. And when they did, they missed out on God's mercy. The second half of it is, and this is the argument against the judgment, is that when we see what's wrong, we apply kindness all the more. And for these people, there was a brokenness not only in their ability to see what was right and wrong, but even when they did, they just responded judgmentally and harmfully and callously. And and instead of showing mercy and kindness where, where they had been shown mercy and kindness by God, they just passed on judgment. So much so that the first argument, did you catch that? The first argument was toward the priests. He jumps out there in verse 4. Look, let no one contend, let no one accuse. Like, listen, you, you, I, I, kind of pointing the finger at this priest who apparently is pointing the finger and contending and accusing. And he says, with you is the contention, you priest. Picture that. There's something radically broken. Something radically broken when we see the person that's supposed to be the intercessor between us and God have brokenness. We've seen this in the last couple of decades as people who were meant to be loving and caring. In the last few decades, it's been exposed that some of the people who were supposed to love and care the most, namely priests, have been the perpetrators of the most awful crimes against people for which they were supposed to care. And there's a special kind of hurt that exists there, isn't there? Like if the priest is this way, where are we? If the guy who's supposed to know better and know better for all of us doesn't know better, where are we? And then what goes on after that is there's a stumbling that's taken place because of the judgment that those people were passing. They weren't passing on the same kind of kindness that God had been given. So make sure we're clear on this. Mercy and kindness isn't obliviousness to sin. It isn't naivete toward sinfulness, but instead it's a clear awareness of what's broken and that which is wrong, and yet in light of it to show kindness over and above that which we deserve. And then thirdly, you see the last thing it says in verse 1, they have no knowledge of God in the land. This third charge has kind of an objective and subjective part of it that plays out for the whole of the Bible, and we'll kind of wrap up as we see the points of hopefully connectivity throughout these last couple of chapters. So knowledge of God has a, has a double meaning for the Bible. It's objective. It's theological in nature. So we know God in that we know about God and we know the traits of God and the characteristics of God. But it's also subjective in that we know God intimately like a person. Genesis paints this picture of this kind of knowledge using the exact same word where it says that Adam knew Eve, she conceived and bore a child. Get the picture? Again, if that's confusing, ask your parents, come ask me later, right? The, the picture of knowledge, biblical knowledge, when it, when it refers to people, is a deeply intimate knowledge. And for them to know, for Adam to know Eve, means that she bore a child, according to Genesis chapter 4. So there's this objective knowledge of God that we know about Him, we know His characteristics, and we trust in Him, but there's this subjective side of God that we don't just know Him like facts on a, on a baseball card. We know Him like a father. And in this place, Hosea is saying that the most key ingredients that God has bestowed upon us, namely a demonstration of his consistency and faithfulness, a demonstration of his steadfast love and mercy, and a demonstration of himself such that we intimately know them are all completely missing. It infiltrates the leadership. You see, chapter 4, chapter 4 all the way, from verse 4 all the way to the end, he talks about priests. But in verse 1 of chapter 5, his contention, did you catch that? Give ear, O house of the king, for judgment is also for you. It infiltrates leadership, but it also infiltrates the symbols. And the symbols where things used to be good and wholesome become evidence of brokenness. So he drops a bunch of names. Did you catch in verse 8 of chapter 5? Um, he, he drops a bunch of names. He says that these particular places and these names that may seem foreign to us are actually evidence of brokenness in these people. He also does it in chapter 4, verses 15 and 16, namely the name Gilgal and the name beth Avin. So if you want to, you can make a note of this, but in Joshua chapter 4, verse 20, there's a place called Gilgal, and after God's people have been delivered from the armies of their enemies, they build an altar, and he names 
Joshua names this place Gilgal as a reminder forever and ever that every generation who walked by this pile of rocks would go, hey, daddy, granddad, what's this pile of rocks mean? And they would look at the symbol and they would say, oh, this pile of rocks is meant to be a reminder of how God, instead of showing wrath to us, has shown us mercy. So much so that we sing this when we sing that song, the hymn that's one of the most popular hymns for the last couple hundred years, Come Thou Fount. In the second verse, we say, here I raise my Ebenezer. Ebenezer, a literal word that, a word that literally means rock of help, comes right out of the book of Joshua, such that people would walk by this rock and this pile of rocks and these markers are in their culture, and they would say, what does this mean? And they would say, this symbol is a symbol of God's mercy for us where we deserve punishment. But what does it say here? It says, stay away from Gilgal. Don't even begin to go there. Because you have rejected God's mercy. And the place that used to be a symbol of goodness became a symbol of wickedness. For some of you in this room, this is the symbol, the symbols that go along with the church. For some of you, you are hurt and you've been broken and beaten up by a church. And the symbols that used to mean mercy now terrify you and look like craziness. And if I could say this to you, this, this is evidence. You begin to resonate with this. You begin to see that God is pointing out something that is broken. The next thing it says, the symbol, it says beth Aven. There was a place called Beth-El, which means literally the house of God, a place where Jacob had such a powerful encounter with God that he named the place house of God. And the indictment here, Hosea says, don't go near there because thou, thou now that place is Beth Aven, which literally means now house of iniquity. It's a play on words. We do this all the time. We, I, I think I see this the most visibly in like professional sports. You see these? Right? Like I used to be a cowboy fan, and we're like, cowboys, haha, <laughs> cowgirls, you mean, right? So this, this is for, for all of you Minnesota Vikings fans, it's like, yo, yeah, the Vikings, yeah, you mean the Vikings, <laughs> right? The same thing, it's a play on words. House of God, you mean house of iniquity, right? Sioux City, and more like sewer city, <laughs> get what I'm saying? Right now, I can't say a lot of the words about a lot of the cities and a lot of the places I've been because they're utterly inappropriate. So just take, the, take your time here and run through your own imagination and begin to realize this is a play on words and they take what once was good, what was meant for good, and it becomes a symbol of something that's awful. House of God? You mean house of iniquity? So for some of you that maybe what used to represent good and wholesome things, as I even stand here and talk to you about who God is and who Jesus is, and I ask you to think about believing in him, even now, something deeply dissatisfying comes up inside of you, right? Because what was meant to be a symbol of God's mercy and God's goodness is for you a symbol of lunacy, a symbol that has been corrupted. And that's what happens. This is the brokenness that exists because of our sinfulness. And it exists when we see that there is a lack of knowledge of who God is, both intimately and objectively. There's a lack of understanding that we share with people. and show. So instead of passing on the mercy that God gives to us, we don't pass on that mercy, but we pass on judgment. And instead of having authenticity and having integrity, we are fake and we look this way around these people and this way around the others. So what? Would you turn with me to the very next verse in chapter 6? I told you it was going to be a long, miserable walk, didn't I? <laughs> Hang with me. Hang with me. Let's read the first three verses together of Hosea chapter 6, verse 1. In light of God's judgment that we've just read for chapter 4 and chapter 5, this is what Hosea says. Come. Let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us in order that he may heal us. He has struck us down, and he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. 
Oh, this is where it gets good. And on the third day, He will raise us up in order that we may live before Him. So let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. Did you catch that? Two full chapters of lamentation. A litany of struggle for these people who have turned away from God. So that they might know how dark and broken the world really is. So that they might see intimately the places in which they have turned and trusted in other things. But for us who turn to the Lord, we return to Him, there is something far better. And where there once were places where our lives have been torn apart, He will put them back together. Where there were places in our lives where we felt beaten and struck down, He wants to lift us up. And this is a saying that goes on and on in the Old Testament that we see finally in Jesus Christ. After two days, He'll let you stay there for a minute. He'll let you stay in the dark for just a little bit. But on the third day, on the third day, He will raise us up. Would you begin to consider the possibility that this isn't just a story about some people who lived in the 7th and 8th century BCE, but instead this might be a story about you and about me and about the life that God means to give to you and to me through Jesus Christ. Such that these curses, these curses that you and I have deserved because of our hypocrisy, because of our lack of mercy, and because of our lack of knowledge of God, those curses which we deserved were heaped upon Jesus. And so that you would know that God is no longer angry at you, He heaped those curses upon His Son. And instead of leaving them there to be punished forever and ever, to give you new life on the third day every Easter we celebrated, He walked out of the tomb. Would you begin to consider the possibility? I know it's crazy. A dead man is a lot. I know it's crazy, but it's just as crazy as considering the possibility that that which has held you down for years might actually be broken apart by God's mercy. And if you would consider the possibility that this story is about how God brings that which is dead back to life in your life and in Jesus's, then it might be possible that the promise of life that he gives to us will be true for you and for me. So here's our response. We get to celebrate in the next couple of minutes. I'm going to pray for us and we're going to seek God in this way and then we're going to engage in a visible and actual response as we celebrate this good news. A sacrifice was demanded because these people had sinned. And if you and I are honest, we would recognize something in us is broken. Something in us is unable to show people mercy. It's unable to have a lack of hypocrisy. And the celebration that you and I have, we call the Lord's Supper, where we say with boldness that our sin is covered by Jesus. So let me read to you this new covenant. In spite of brokenness, Paul warns the Corinthians. He says, look, when you come together, there are divisions among you, and I believe this, and there are even factions. And when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat, because in eating them, you actually go ahead of one another. One person gets hungry, one person gets drunk. He says you, in fact, humiliate one another. So I have, no, I have no commendation for you. But this is the good news he passes on to you and to me. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, just think about that, instead of, instead of exacting vengeance on the people who betrayed him, on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread and he went and given thanks, he broke it and he says, This is my body, which is for you. Now take this and do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant that's in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Not in remembrance of your sin and your wickedness, but in remembrance of the sacrifice which Jesus has paid. Not in remembrance of your failure and your brokenness, but in the remembrance of the new life that Jesus has promised. So in a couple minutes, we're going to take part in this. We're going to take a little piece of bread and, a, and a, little piece, a little bit of juice. We're going to dip the bread into the juice and, 
And someone will declare good news over you and say, this, bro- this blood is for you, this body was broken for you. So for those of you in this room, maybe if you're not a believer, you're not a Christian, man, don't feel obligated to participate in this. Because it would just be a really unsatisfying small bite of bread, would it not? But for those of us, and I would invite you into considering this possibility, for those of us who know the mercy that God has extended to us, we will take this piece of bread, and in an actual and tangible way, we will participate in the life of Jesus Christ. And in the sacrifice that was paid on our behalf. The sacrifice that did not stay in the tomb, but on the third day walked out for your life and for mine. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for your goodness. We thank you so much for your mercy. Uh, We thank you so much for your kindness. God, we confess that believing all of those things about you is incredibly difficult for us. Uh, To believe that you could love the unlovable, to believe that you could show mercy to us as we run away. Uh, We we recognize that our first instinct is doubt and cynicism. But as we've walked through this litany of, of judgment for these people, I believe that we recognize that we probably could fit in line with these people. But instead of being showered with guilt and shame as we walk through this litany of guilt that is ours, we actually are reminded of how good this sacrifice of Jesus Christ is for us. So for those of us in this room, and there's just, there's just doubt. This sounds ridiculous to believe in Jesus and and to think that he was real and that what he accomplished was real for us, that's difficult because our first nature is skepticism. But even now, would you begin to open our minds to the possibility that this Jesus has done something in the same way that Hosea demonstrated your faithfulness to your people, Jesus has demonstrated your mercy to us. So we want to run to you. We want to seek your mercy. We want to seek your face. And the way we want to do that is through the only way we know how, and that's through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. We want to proclaim your death over our sins, that instead of feeling the guilt and shame, instead we have a celebration of a sacrifice in our place. Let us do that together as we sing and declare this in song. Let us do this also together as we take place, as we take part in this Lord's Supper that you instituted to demonstrate a remembrance, a reminder of your love for us. In Jesus' name, amen.